So I'm attempting to go through the book of Luke. I'm not sure I'm going to make it. It's uh, it's it's this, and then it's this, and then it's this, and then it's this. Uh, Luke Luke presents Jesus as the hardworking Son of God, and I'll tell you, you get tired listening to everything that he did. Uh, we're looking at Sabbath experiences today, and um, uh, that's that's kind of the direction that we're going. In, in, at the end of this chapter is what Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and um, it, I, I really wanted to cover that today, but there's just too much here, and I, I, I don't know what to cut. I have a hard time cutting sections out of the Bible and say, well, we shouldn't talk about that, so... So here we are in Luke chapter 6, but uh, if, if my, hey, I got my mouse, see? Yeah. I got a new mouse, uh, Martin sells mice, who could guess? So I got a new mouse, so I'm going to leave here in my pulpit, so I won't be mouseless anymore, um, unless somebody steals my mouse, I don't know, that could happen, I guess, somebody might get hit. What's that? After the cheese. After the cheese, not the mice, okay, good, good to know. So um, we understand that Luke wrote this account. Uh, Luke was not an apostle. Luke, we believe, wrote this about 60 AD uh, and followed it with the book of Acts 62. Uh, There are those that argue that Luke developed this as a pre-trial document for Paul's trial before the Caesar. Uh, and that was required that there be some written background. And uh, there are those that believe this was part of the pretrial document. We understand he was of Greek culture. Whether or not he was a Hellenistic Greek or Jewish person raised in a Greek or whether he was actually a Greek, we, we really don't know uh, that much about Luke. But we do believe that everything that he's written in this was by personal interviews and of people who were there. And as we read, you know, every, every Christmas we read the first two chapters of Luke because that's the Christmas story. And we believe he got that directly from Mary. And we believe he interviewed people to get this information, you know. Now, there are some that believe Luke was saved on Paul's first missionary journey. And on his next missionary journey, Paul asked him to continue following him. That's when Barnabas and Paul broke up over the issue of John Mark. Uh, John Mark also wasn't an apostle as chosen of the twelve, which I think is interesting. That uh, John Mark was just a quote-unquote kid. He was a young man at the time. And no one mentions in the garden when Jesus was arrested, uh, except for Mark, that a young man fled in his night clothes and a Roman soldier grabbed his, his pajamas and he fled right out of his pajamas. Uh, and Mark is the only one that mentions that. And we, we think he was talking about himself, that he snuck out of the house. We think his mother was Mary where the Last Supper was held. And we think that he snuck out of the house without permission and actually observed the things that were going on in the garden. And when the Romans came, that's when he fled. So that's John Mark that Paul had a disagreement with because he got scared and wanted to go home, you know. Luke became an almost constant traveler with Paul and at many stops where a church was was in the process of being born and Paul was either stoned, beaten up, or run out of town, Luke would stay behind and help the little church get started. So there are times Luke was with Paul and there were times he wasn't with Paul. Now clearly he's not telling us everything he learned in all of his interviews. 
he, he's clearly telling a story for a specific purpose. And, and one of the things that's interesting about this particular account is he leaves out a lot of things that are particularly Jewish, like about the law. Uh, and, and as a result, and another thing he does is he always make, makes Roman centurions look good and Jewish religious leaders look bad. And that's one of the little slants on there that we think was done for the specific purpose of writing this to the Romans. Um, now, just as a bit of a review, my mouse is, is it behind me? Or is it, is it dead? There it is, there it is. I got it, yeah, it was, it was back there, right? Yeah, my mouse is just the most undisciplined mouse I've ever owned. Uh, but the new mouse, I, I was afraid to try it on a Sunday the first time, but it's supposed to work on any surface. So I have this as a sissy mouse, and then I have a rough and ready mouse that's supposed to be better, you know. So back in Luke 14, and Jesus returned with the power of the Spirit of Galilee, and there went out the fame about him throughout all the regions, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. It was his custom. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. So as long as he could safely go to synagogues, I mean, there came a time where he was no longer welcome. But as long as he could safely go and without creating too much of a stir, he made it his habit that he would go to the worship services on the Sabbath of all the Jewish towns that he was in. This was just what he did. He didn't miss church. And the, all day in the synagogue, when they heard these things, now this is the story that we've already covered about three weeks ago, where he, he told them that God saved the son of a Gentile woman and fed, a, no, no, he healed a Gentile general of leprosy and he fed the widow woman and her son. And this was their response, that, that Jesus would remind them that God is sovereign and will save and help who he wills. And in this case, it was Gentiles. And all day in the synagogue, when they had heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him into the brow of the hill whereupon the city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. Now, I was trying to think, you know, what, what could be said of this series of Sabbath experiences? When you think of the fact that he went home and his own people tried to kill him, you know, Next, Luke will tell us about Capernaum in Luke chapter 4. Is that what I have next? Yeah, I'm just skipping through the synagogues. And when it was day, he departed and went to a desert place, and the people sought him. I, did I skip one? What am I at here? Five? Let's go back to four. And they in the synagogue, no, no, I skipped one. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to read it to you when they heard these things were filled. No, that's okay. Next, I just skipped it. I skipped it in my notes. I'm sorry. Next in chapter 4, Luke tells us about Capernaum. So he, he, he's in a strictly Jewish uh, synagogue, not very cosmopolitan in Nazareth, and they try to kill him. He goes to Capernaum, which is greatly influenced by Gentiles, and he's very well accepted. Again in the synagogue, that's where the demoniac was healed in chapter 4. He leaves the People were amazed at his healing powers over this demoniac. It was quite an event. We covered that probably two weeks ago. And everyone, it says, was amazed. Peter's mother-in-law was healed. That evening, uh, he healed all that were brought to him. And it was because of these healings that word began to spread about him. And now I'm at verse 42 of Luke chapter 4. I'm just skipping up to where we're starting in chapter 6. And when it was day, he departed and went to a desert place. And the people sought him. Now, think, think that uh, Capernaum is sort of a... It isn't a Gentile city, but it's a lot of Greek 
a lot of Roman, a lot of Gentile influence, and they loved him there. But when he was at his hometown, they wanted to push him off a cliff. Now he leaves the next day, Capernaum, and when he departed, it says he went to a desert place, and the people sought him and came to him and stayed him, that he stayed him, they tried to get him to stay, that he should not depart. And he said to them, now, now you, you got to, the, the purpose of this brief walk through the scriptures is to think about what it was like to be walking with him. All right. This is about the apostles. At the end of this, he's going to call his 12, 12. He's going to call 12 of the disciples, all the people that are with him. He's going to call 12 of them to be his apostles. So you're walking with him. You go to his hometown and his own people almost killed him. You go to a, a, it's not a Gentile city, but it wasn't well thought of uh, by people, by Jews, uh, because of its, its, its uh, Gentile influence in Capernaum. And, and he's well received there. And as he goes to leave Capernaum, they beg him to stay. So what, what are you thinking? You, you think this guy is the Messiah, and he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And it's not going according to plan. You know, now last week we looked in chapter five at the miraculous catch of fish and we saw the second call of Andrew and the first call of Peter, James and John. They were fishing. You know, we told the story last week back at Peter's house. You know, we, we looked at the time where the four guys carried a paralyzed man and they broke it up and uh, they let him down the center of Peter's house, uh, much to the dismay of the homeowner. And uh, shortly after that, uh, they're confronted. This is the first major confrontation in Luke by the Pharisees. They're confronted by, by after Jesus calls Matthew, Matthew hosts a party that night at Jesus' request. And the Pharisees confront Jesus about his people not fasting. You know, they're, they were big on fasting. They were big on being sorrowful. They were big on long faces. And he could, they couldn't figure out why everybody was having so much fun. And Jesus said those four parables that we finished with last week. Uh, Jesus said, you don't fast at a wedding party. You know, you're celebrating the arrival of the bridegroom here. This isn't time to mourn. Secondly, he said, you can't repair an old pair of pants with new cloth. It won't work. And 30 said, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And you know, you're a disciple now. What is he saying? What is he talking about? He's talking about Israel, right? And he's talking about what he's doing here. Now, no one really understands yet that he's starting a church and that that church is going to include Gentiles and Jews. And that church is going to replace Israel for a time. I don't believe Israel's permanently replaced I believe Israel is set aside for a time. And in so doing, these Jews have no, these disciples that are following Jesus have no idea what's going on. And I was trying to think, what should I call this sermon? It ain't going to be easy. That's what you can call this sermon. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's not going to be easy. He ends the four parables by talking about nobody who loves old wine will readily take the new wine. Change is not easy. And that's where we ended it last week. So you can't patch up the old legal system with grace. You can't sow grace onto the law. That's what I tried to do when I was first saved. I thought that now that I'm saved, I could keep the law. See, I didn't understand. 
But the harder I tried to keep the law, the worse my life became. I'd make list upon list, and I think, well, this week I'm not going to cuss, or this week I'm not going to steal something, or this week I'm not going to tell a lie. And it would get worse and worse. I was trying to patch my new salvation onto the old system, and you can't do that. That's what he's saying here. You can't sew new cloth onto an old pair of pants. You can't contain your new life into your old life. You can't be a Christian and your old man. So you can't pour new wine into old wineskins because it, it, I mean, in the, in the, the chemical sense, it'll ferment, expand, and blow up the old wineskin. They don't have any flexibility. But what Jesus is talking about is pouring the Holy Spirit into a lost soul. And your soul cannot contain it. You can't be your old self and be saved at the same time. You can't do that. And finally, you have to understand that those who love the old system are going to hate the new. Change is not easy. It's not easy for us. Very, very interesting choices as Jesus, even through this chapter now, is patiently attempting to teach the Pharisees what's going on. I mean, he's not attacking them. He's not calling them names. At this point, they're not calling him names yet. They're just saying what's going on here. And he's, he's systematically explaining it to them. Although I don't think many of them got it, I think you really have to think about these words quite a bit before you get it, get what he was trying to say or what he, Jesus wasn't trying to say what he said to them. I understand what he meant by that. But it's very interesting because the more I think about it, the more I see how appropriate those four parables are to respond to these Pharisees and their questions. He took their question seriously and he answered it carefully. So that was chapter 5 and now we're in chapter 6 on another Sabbath. Now there was a Sabbath. Now see, I, you probably don't remember this, but sometime back, maybe three, three times back, I told you, these are not, these may be sequential, but they're not in order. All right? They're not... This Sunday, I'm sorry, the Sabbath's on a Saturday. This Saturday, this Saturday, this Saturday, that Saturday. It's not that. Uh, it's, it's, there was this Sabbath in Nazareth, and then maybe a year and a half passed, and there was a Sabbath at Capernaum. And we don't know how long it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first. See, the first was Nazareth, the second was Capernaum. Now this is the third one that he wants to talk about. Not necessarily the third one sequentially, as much as a year and a half has passed by this point. And it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the cornfields and his disciples plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. Now, you, you, you all understand they're talking about wheat and not corn. Because if you pluck corn and rub it in your hands, you end up with mush, right? But if you pluck wheat and rub it in your hands, you end up with the seeds. You just blow the chaff away and you can actually eat them. It's called Wheaties. Right? So they were having a breakfast of Wheaties without the milk. Now these Pharisees understood that what they were doing on the Sabbath day was a violation of their law. You know, there's the Ten Commandments, the law. And then there's God's word to Moses about what these laws meant. And then the Pharisees started writing their own definitions of what that meant. So they added to the law, I think I heard two volumes. I'd like to be able to tell you how many pages, but, but hundreds if not thousands of rules that they added to the law. And according to their law, walking and eating are both violations of the law of the Sabbath. Uh, 
Now, Jesus, I don't want to say this wrong. It, it almost appears like he went out of his way to challenge them on their written law, which is called the Mishnah. Uh, that's the Pharisees' list of 250,000 rules that you have to keep in order to be saved. Uh, and it, it was, there are all kinds of rules in there. I should probably get a copy of it and share it with you sometime. You know. But in their interpretation of the Ten Commandments, when it says you cannot work on the Sabbath day, eating was work. Walking was work. And certain of the Pharisees, have I moved up there? Oh, I've got to get my mouse in place. Certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not read so much as this, what David did when he himself and hungered? And they which were with him, how he went into the house of God and did take and eat of the showbread, and gave also to them that were with him, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests alone. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this story, but when David was first anointed as king and Saul understood it, Saul began to persecute David and chase him. And it ended up that David was a hunted, quote-unquote, criminal for 10 years. And this is in the early time when this first started. And so his, his, the, the men that were with him, it really wasn't even an army by this point, but the men that were with him and he were not prepared to be on the run. And they nearly starved to death. And they showed up at, at a synagogue and they demanded... Uh, they asked if they could have something to eat. And the only food there was the food that was dedicated to God. Now, after a week, they took that showbread and then the Pharisees could eat it, the, the priests could eat it. But it was never for the common person. And yet, the priest allowed that to happen. He allowed David to take those 12 uh, loaves of bread and feed his army with it, you know, or his men that were on the run with him. Now, I don't know what to make of this story, except to say that Jesus is reminding these Pharisees that when David was being persecuted by his enemies, David was God's anointed king. And as a result, the priest understood at that time that it was all right for him to do that. And you could parallel that to Jesus is God's anointed king who's now being persecuted by these Pharisees. And I don't know if that's making too much of this passage or not. Jesus' explanation of it is found in the next verse. And he said to them, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, his Lord also of the Sabbath. Now, Jameson Fawcett Brown, when he responds to this, do I have that here? Wow, I don't know. I thought I went through this more carefully. Just let me back up, let me back, if I can. And he said unto them that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Uh, James says, Falsus Brown says, this is hard to understand because he's, it's old English. This statement that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath is as clear a claim to all the authority of him who gave the law at Mount Sinai as could possibly be made. Now he's saying that Jesus is saying, I am the God that made the law of Sinai. See, I am the Lord of the Sabbath laws. In this place is the Lord of the law, and they have his permission to eat. I have given them 
my permission to eat. Another Sabbath, it came to pass on another Sabbath, he entered into a synagogue. Now, I want you to notice the shift here. His own people tried to kill him. The, the, the more Gentile, the more cosmopolitan city accepted him. Now he's getting in trouble with these Pharisees because they're beginning to follow him around. And now on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. There was a man with a right hand who was withered. And there are those that think that the Pharisees put this guy in that synagogue, sat him on the front row so that Jesus could see this, is an, an, in an opportunity to entrap Jesus into violating the law because in their mind, for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath would be a sin. I'm sure if it was my withered hand, I wouldn't see that as a sin. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day that they might find an accusation against him. Notice that by now they're looking for an opportunity. But he knew their thoughts. And he said unto the men which had the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. Now I want you to notice, Jesus is starting to get irritated, but he's still teaching them. We're not down to you, you, you brood of serpents yet. We haven't gotten there yet, alright? But you can tell in his voice, He's just not totally pleased with what's going on here. And then Jesus asked them, so he understands that there's this plant. I just would love to see this happen in a church sometime when I wasn't a minister. Uh, there's this plant in the church that the enemies of Christ have planted there. And Jesus realizes that they're doing this to attack him. And rather than avoid it, which I would do, I would pretend I never saw the withered hand. What would you do? I don't know. You know, would you call on the guy? Jesus says, hey, come up here. <laughs> and then he says to them, have I gotten there yet? I'd like to ask you one thing. He's not talking to the withered hand guy who's thinking, oh my God, I'm going to die. He's talking to the Pharisees, probably standing in the back. I'll ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it. Now, Jesus understood something that we don't really get. And that is that the enemy wants to destroy us. He wants to kill us. To do good or to do evil, to save a life, the withered hand, or destroy a life, my life. Jesus is referring to himself. He knows that in their heart, they're looking for an opportunity for him to do something so wrong that they can take him out and stone him. But he saw through their scheme because he could read their minds. He understood that they wanted to trap him. And by, by your, now Jesus is challenging them, by your definition of work, you could say yes I am violating the law. I am working on the Sabbath. Now, I would argue with that, that this is the one with a capital O who stood on the precipice of nothing and uttered two words. Now, we say four words. He said in the English, let there be light. Four words. But in the Hebrew, it's only two words. It's haya hor. Just two words. Let there be light. And 
and the universe as we know it came into existence at the expression of two words from this person standing in the synagogue, right? So you could argue, well, if it's work, it's not much work for him to fix a hand because he can call the universe into existence with just two words. I don't think he perceived this as work. But the point is that they, the Pharisees, who were attacking him for working on the Sabbath, they were also working on the Sabbath. They were working a scheme to entrap Jesus and make it possible that they might murder him. They were crafting deceit. Now, is it worse, Jesus says to them, in front of the church, I'm telling you, this would have been some church service, in front of the church to the religious leaders that have oppressed the Jews for centuries with their laws, he's challenging them to their face, which is worse. Is it a violation of the law if I heal? Is it bad if I heal this man on the Sabbath day? And it doesn't matter. It's not a violation of the law for you to craft deceit against me and seek to destroy me to do this twisted evil scheme. If I'm working, you're working. What do you think is better to do? Healing a man with a withered hand or setting up the Son of God in order to destroy him? And looking around about, he said them all, he looked at them all, he said to the man, stretch forth thy hand. Now, Jesus didn't bring out a chicken and dance around with chicken blood to heal his hand. He didn't even say be healed. What the scriptures implies is he said to the man, stretch out your hand. In other words, put it out here where we can see it. And by the time he got it out there, it was whole. It wasn't, you know, any voodoo being done. There was no work, nothing. He just said, this is the way Jesus operated. The guy's a paralytic last week, never walked in his life. And Jesus says, take up your bed and walk. And the guy goes, he feels his feet for the first time in his lifetime and he stands up and walks. No voodoo, no weird dancing around, no nothing. Because he has the ability with his words to change to call universes into existence. And he looked round about them all. And he said to the man, stretch forth their hand. And when he did so, and he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Now look at their response. They were filled with madness. They went crazy. And communed one with another. What are we going to do now? Jesus exposes their hidden sin before the whole synagogue. You talk about... Pharisees did not like to be called out on things, especially called out on their own evil. And they certainly didn't like, like the idea of being made fun of. And you can be sure that these folks had never seen a synagogue like service like this before. I mean, they're on the edge of, the, I'd say their seats, but they're probably sitting on a stone. But they're on the edge of their seats, their benches anyway. And you can be sure this is a full-blown confrontation between God and Satan right here in the church. Now, Jameson Fawcett Brown, this is a slide I was looking for, but I was confused. Jameson Fawcett Brown said they were filled with madness is a word, a Greek word that denotes a senseless rage. They went nuts, we would say, at the confusion. And I would say, if it were me, the embarrassment to which our Lord had put them both by word and by deed. Luke said they were so crazy mad they could just pop. They were ready to explode. Can you imagine the chuckles 
in this stiff Jewish congregation as these who have oppressed them for so many years are literally made fools of in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, after this confrontation, and I hope you notice as we go through this progression and the purpose for the progression is so that you might notice that we're going from bad to worse. Uh, It's not getting any better for Jesus or for the boys. And I don't know about you, but if I had signed up for this seminary, this three and a half year seminary program and gotten to this point where we're only a year and a half in and we're already challenging the religious leadership, I would begin to think, maybe I'm in the wrong program here. This may not be this this may not be what I signed up for here. And it came to pass in those days and and the word means. uh, We might say not long after this. So it's not a specific next day, but not long after this, uh, he went into a mountain alone to pray. And he continued there all night in prayer to God. Now, I, I would have loved to have been sitting with the boys, which I'm assuming were not with him. I'm assuming they had a campfire and they were, they were sitting around and sleeping around a campfire. And Jesus went off by himself further up the mountain to pray. And I'd like you to imagine that you're waiting down below with these other guys, and we don't know how many are there. I mean, that original picture showed about 25 people, but we knew it was more followers than there were uh, apostles chosen. He chose the 12 from a group of people. The 12 that he chose became apostles. We'll get into that in a minute. But imagine you're waiting down below, and you have your, your sleeping bag out there on the rocks, Uh, or in this case, probably a camel's blanket out on the rock, and you're trying to keep warm and you got your head on a rock, you've been following Jesus for a year and a half now, and you go to his home and they try to kill him. You go to every synagogue and you find him in a fight with the Pharisees. And in this last time, they were actually trying to destroy him, trying to find occasion to kill him. And I'm asking you, what are you thinking now? I'm thinking I may have signed up in the wrong seminary. This might be the wrong college for me. But you're certainly thinking, you know, this doesn't look like this is going to be easy. This isn't going to be just wham, bam, and take over the Roman army with the Messiah. Whatever's going on here is not what I expected. My expectations are not being met here. And when it was day, he called unto his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John. And of course, this was either the third time he singled them out or the fourth. But now he first called them to come see where he lives. And then he called them to follow me. And now he's calling them as apostles. Matthew, I'm sorry, I didn't get to the end, did I? Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, called Zelotes, Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. Now, Matthew adds some things, and so does Mark. And when he had called them his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of diseases. So he gave them the spiritual gifts that he wanted them to exercise in their role, their new role as apostles that he's called them to. 
And he ordained twelve that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. So he, had, he, he ordained, he gifted them for healing and he called them, he ordained them to preach. Now in the strict definition, a disciple is a learner. It's a student. And all those that were following Jesus were disciples. They had all come to learn about Jesus. You know, there were many who were following Jesus, many men, women and men. Some, some were probably after something for themselves. And some maybe just wanted to be close to where all this crazy action was going on. I mean, they were bored with their lives and they wanted to see what's happening. You know. And some really wanted to learn more about this fellow. And I hope you're in that last group. I hope you're in that group of disciples that really wants to learn more about this fellow called Jesus. These, these words picture Jesus picking out from the crowd these 12. Now the word apostle is one, the, the definition of the word apostle is one who sent forth with authority. So it's like, you know, Jim, I want you to come over here and I want you to take this message of mine and I want you to take it over to England and I want you to share it with the king of England. That's an apostle. It's one sent forth with the authority of the one sending him to carry a message or a purpose or a work someplace else. So, you know, it's not long after this, he's going to send them out on their first missionary tour. And they're going to go out into different cities two by two. He's, he's equipping them for that purpose. Now, there are those... You know, hopefully we're all serious disciples here. But I just don't believe everyone is an apostle. I don't believe every Christian that's saved is an apostle. Uh, I don't see that word applying to me. I do believe Jesus saved me. I believe He called me into the ministry. I believe the church ordained me to the task. So in the strict definition of the word, I might be an apostle of the Baptist church, sent out in authority of the Baptist church, and called of God to preach. And you could argue whether or not I'm equipped of God to preach, but, but I believe, I, I hope I am, you know. But I've never thought of that word apostle as applying to me. I, I always separated the apostles as the apostles of Jesus Christ. But the term can be used in other ways. The, the Greek word apostolos can be used in other ways. Now, there are Pentecostals who like the title of apostle, so they... they, they they designate themselves as apostles. I have no problem with that. I just don't. I just don't see it working for me, which is probably what makes me a Baptist. You know, um, I don't see it applying to Christians today. But I do believe. I do believe that every Christian who hears his call in their life, every Christian who's born again, is also called to a mission. I do believe that. I believe we're all called to be disciples. Jesus said it clearly, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So back in the days when I was struggling and my life was failing and sin was controlling my life and I was beaten down and broken, I called on Him and He drove me to Himself and He gave me rest from my struggles. This is not a figurative verse. This is literal. If you're laboring and struggling in life, there is rest for you in Jesus Christ. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. That's the role of a disciple. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest into your souls. Jesus will never demand as much of you as you demand of yourself. He will never berate you or make fun of you or tell you you failed. He will always be the perfect gentleman with you. And he will make it possible that you can do everything that he leads you to do. Somebody used to say, where God leads, he provides. I believe every born again person is a disciple. But I also believe every born again disciple is given a gift. Paul said, when he's talking about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, the manifestation, the outward working of the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, is given to every person, generic man, anthropos, when you're talking about humans, that's the word they use. It's not just masculine. The manifestation of the Spirit is to give every man to profit with all. So regardless of whether you were on the mountain that day and called out by God and probably Jesus laid his hands on them and prayed for them and sent them out as apostles, and even though you weren't there, you still have a spiritual gift that was laid on you by the hands of the Holy Spirit and, and, and made it possible for you to work your ministry that God has called you to. So while I don't believe you could call yourself the Apostle George or the Apostle John or the Apostle Bob, I just don't think that word applies in this application. You are definitely, without question, one sent forth with authority. And your authority is the indwelling Holy Spirit. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone to profit the group. The purpose of the spiritual gift is not to provide you with an income, but to help the church grow. Everybody has a ministry gifted to you for the purpose of helping the church grow. While we're not all apostles, we're definitely all sent forth with authority of the Holy Spirit. I believe every one of us is called to share what we've learned as disciples of Jesus, not only within the church, which this verse is implying, but also to the world. Now, in Matthew 28, 18, we call, this is only a fragment of it, but we call it the Great Commission. And in the Great Commission, there were 120 people present, not just 12 apostles. And that's important because you were there. The church was there. The church was there on the hill that day. See? And it came, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Exousia this time, authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the role of the disciple. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Everything you are learning as you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, you are to be sharing. You are to be sharing your spiritual gifts with the church, and you are to be sharing your learning as a disciple with the world. That's the calling of the Christian. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together, for this opportunity to look at your scriptures. Father, many of us begin to think that church is a spectator sport. And my prayer is, Father, that through these, these scriptures, we will see that we are all to participate 
in this thing called discipleship. Father, my prayer is that everybody that hears my voice has made an individual and personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they have seen themselves as unable to live a good life, that they have seen themselves as sinners, and that although right now their burden is heavy, they will call on you, and you will take that burden of sin and give them a much lighter walk. Father, it's my prayer that everyone within the sound of my voice has called on you for their salvation. But more than that, Father, I pray that everyone understands that in them now as a believer is a spiritual gift that they are, that they are ordained to exercise. And I pray, Father, that they would know now what that gift is and that they would exercise. But even more than that, Father, I pray that each of us as disciples will find opportunities to share what we're learning as disciples with this world around us. I pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.